One of the biggest developments in communications over the last year or so has been companies and their CEOs deciding to speak out and stand up on social issues, even if they're not directly aligned with the business. Merck CEO Kenneth Frazier is the first to leave President Trump's business council after Charlottesville. In the wake of Parkland, Dick's and Walmart raised the minimum age for gun buyers at their stores and banned the sale of assault weapons altogether. And Nike ties its brand to Colin Kaepernick, one of the most polarizing public figures in sports. Brands are taking stands now more than ever. And while it may be that conscious capitalism is taking root, companies do need to make well-reasoned strategic choices about if, when, and how they're going to engage on these issues. That's one of the questions we tackled at this year's Page Annual Conference, in a session led by Paul Argenti of the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. In this episode, Paul lays out his framework for weighing these decisions with a focus on the risk of engagement and how well a particular issue is aligned with a brand. You'll also hear from Linda Rutherford of Southwest Airlines, who describes the process that she and her team developed to help inform these decisions, including a traffic light model that synthesizes multiple stakeholder perspectives. I'm Elliot Mizrahi. This is the new CCO. I got interested in this topic uh, actually this past year as a result of a phone call from a reporter who calls me fairly regularly and never quotes me. She's actually one of the favorite people I talk to because we can get into an hour-long conversation. I know I can say all kinds of things, and she can say all kinds of things, and usually 90% of the time it doesn't end up in print. And this time she said, you know, all of these uh, situations started starting with Charlottesville and bathrooms in North Carolina and moving forward. Like, how are you, what are you thinking about this? And we got into a conversation that really, I just wanted to share with you the three things that started my thinking around this. The first is, how can organizations communicate their values in an authentic, consistent way given increased polarity? It becomes more complicated in these times than perhaps it was in the past. The second question was, how should organizations determine when and how to respond to social or geopolitical changes? And this is the question that really started the conversation and ultimately the article, I think, that she was working on. You know, when is the right time to do it? And I don't think these two things are, you know, uh, here for no reason. These two things are intricately linked because in my mind, uh, it, a lot of it depends on who you are and what your values are. And that also is the problem for a lot of companies because those aren't as embedded and understandable as they should be. And I've written extensively about that, do a lot of work in the area of trying to translate strategy into communication. And then the third question was, how should organizations think about the cost-benefit calculations of their responses and their strategy? So those are the three things that kind of got us going on this. And uh, that led, after I thought about it, I thought, well, I ought to write something about this. I wrote a short piece. I did a, a webinar for um, what was then, I think, still the Corporate Executive Council for their diversity and inclusion practice, it's now Gartner. And then after that, I actually have talked to some people in this room and others about this topic as you try to think through what to do and have gotten interested in it, just intellectually interested in it. Let me start with the notion of values. And I think, uh, you know, as part of your strategy, obviously, your values are really critical in determining how you will operate, what you believe in, and how you will behave. That's the best way to think about what your values are. 
they should be aligned to your mission, clearly, uh, not haphazard or generated by executives for no purpose. And they need to be aligned to your business. You can't have values that go against the very nature of the industry you're in or the business that you're in. In addition, they should be guidelines or ways for you to think about how to operate in a crisis or when you're facing a challenge. And I think this is where lots of organizations get in trouble. Maybe they have gone through the exercise of putting something down on paper, and maybe those words are somewhat interesting. Um, and the reason I know this is I've studied the, the values of all of the Fortune 100 companies as much as I could. Uh, and even in the process of trying to get companies to tell me what they are, I had one communications executive who will remain uh, unknown to you say to me when I said, what are your values? Answer to me, I have to go look those up, hold up, I'll be right back to you. Meaning that they obviously aren't something that everyone in the organization lives by. So depending upon how serious you are about this, you can have guidelines, but nobody really knows what they are or live by them. And then finally, they dictate how everyone behaves internally and externally at their best. That's really the way I think we think about it. The or case of values, the example that everyone talks about, and I don't know if Bill Nielsen is here or not, um, is you know, ones that can be understood by anyone are these. I mean, these are written in stone. Um, they clearly guided the company during the Tylenol incident, which is maybe the most written about and thought about crisis of all time. And I think these kinds of values that we put our customers first, and if we do all that and you get right to the bottom of this statement, it says we'll make a lot of money and do really well, not to mention have perhaps the most highly reputed company in history by our measurement systems that we use. Um, it obviously makes sense to go through the elaborate exercise of doing this in the same way that this company did in the 1930s. So this is what I'm talking about when I talk about values. Today, those values can be very different because companies are different than they were before. And I thought I'd share with you one contemporary example, which is Apple's, val uh, Apple's values. And uh, Tim Cook said, you know, we will always try to change the world for the better. That was the motivation uh, behind creating Apple when it was created. And it's still the motivation today because a lot of what we do is not easy. We take some spears along the way, but we always try to do what's right. So it's not surprising then that Apple would weigh in uh, on what was going on in Charlottesville with this and say, you know, regardless of your political views, we must all stand together on this one point, that we are all equal as a company through our actions, our products, and our voice. We will always work to ensure that everyone is treated equally and with respect. So in thinking about this from the perspective of older companies that have very established values that are written in stone, newer companies that maybe they aren't as clearly written down, but clearly the company lives by them, I thought that the first thing is that the values alignment is relevant to how you respond. How relevant is this issue to our core business and values? So today, coming down uh, from Hanover, I open up the New York Times, full page ad, which who reads the New York Times in print anymore? Who actually runs ads? I have no idea, but this, today there was an ad for a group of CEOs who have signed on to urging people to vote. Now this seems like the most benign thing in history, right? I mean, of course, everyone should vote. And yet there were only 27 CEOs on that list, which made me very sad. I wish there were 1,027 on the list. But that's the kind of thing, it's, it's clearly connected to everyone's values and alignment to be in sync with that. And to me, is it relevant to your business? That kind of depends on where you are and how important this issue is to you today, of course. 
the question is, is there risk? And for me, there's no risk in lining up with democracy in the United States. It seems like that's about as low risk as you can get. So it, clearly, saying something about that isn't going to get you in trouble. And it's not really that controversial, except to a handful of people that probably wouldn't matter as much to you as other people might. And what do you have to gain? You're on the side of democracy. What do you have to lose? Absolutely nothing. To me, that was a great example. The real question is, uh, in the next part of it, which is the how. How can we take action? Is there a way to have direct action rather than indirect action to tie your motivations to the business or share your beliefs? So I'm going to go through really quickly some examples in a framework that looks at this in terms of some of the urgency that many of you face. And here it is. And uh, you know, as you know, academics, uh, you know, people like me who do consulting work, we like to put things in two by twos. Here's mine on this. And it's basically on the x-axis, it's high risk, low risk, and on the y-axis, unaligned and aligned to your values. Clearly, if it's not aligned to your values and it's high risk, what are you doing talking about it? And yet, I'm not going to go into detail because I don't want to offend anyone. There are so many examples of this that I probably have 20 that I'm keeping tabs of right now. Like, why did you bother to speak up about this? It's crazy. Like, just don't jump into the fray. In other cases, it's unaligned and it's low risk, and you're spending whatever energy you have on it. Maybe it's a passion for one of your senior executives, fine. But what I thought was, let's start off with the example that just about everybody would have seen in the last few weeks, and that's this one. Um, you know, Colin Kaepernick, uh, Nike, you kind of expect Nike and Wyden Kennedy, its agency for years. They've been pushing this button for about as long as I've been following it. Uh, and it says, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. And of course, this was hugely controversial. And in fact, I know, you know, just from some of the numbers that uh, my friends and uh, colleagues at Morning Consult shared with me, it was very negative and controversial in some ways. But then a study came out this week showing that they sold out of shoes in multiple markets during this time. So you know, the question is, where would you put this on the chart? Well, here are its values, innovation, sustainability, the power of sport, uh, team, a team that's bold. I don't look at those values, and it doesn't ring out that you should be doing this. Uh, it just doesn't strike me as like the top of mind thing that you would want to do. Um, and yet, uh, there's no direct action that you're taking either. You're just making a comment, throwing it out there. So it's a little bit high risk, and some people didn't like it, clearly. Uh, uh, and it's not aligned to your values in any way that I could see. So why would you bother doing it? As Bob already said, Chick-fil-A is a company that has, in my mind, really strong values, ones that you, know, you either like it or you don't, but you can understand those values. Uh, to glorify God by being a faithful steward of all that's entrusted, it makes sense to me, that given that value, that uh, I think we're inviting God's judgment on our nation if, if we shake our fist at him and say, we know better than you what constitutes marriage. Chick-fil-A sales soared. 12% to $4.6 billion in 2012. And it shows that what they do and the values they believe in, if you have values, even if people don't agree with you, as long as you stick to them, to me, that's the most important thing. And you have to admire companies that are operating that way. And to me, it's not direct action, again, in terms of the business, but it does, it does uh, work for them because it's connected to their values. Chipotle, uh, food with integrity, uh, decided to weigh in on guns. And you know, the display of firearms in our restaurants has now created an environment that's potentially intimidating or uncomfortable. 
Well, again, this is clearly something that is, um, you know, it's unaligned in some sense to the overall values of the organization, but it's low risk. I mean, most people will not argue that you shouldn't be bandishing guns in, you know, restaurants. Like, most people would not agree that that's a good idea. There are a few people who obviously did weigh in, uh, but again, to me, a way of thinking about it that we want to do this and we could do it without too much risk. And the last example I'll give is Walmart. Service to the customer, respect for the individual, strive for excellence, act with integrity. I've written a lot about Walmart. I've never consulted with them. I just admire a lot of what they do as a, you know, a company that is approaching half a trillion dollars. Uh, and they decided to give 500,000 workers a raise. And to me, you know, that's low risk, totally aligned, direct action. So again, just some examples to kind of whet your appetite. Does this framework work for you? You tell me. What's wrong with it? Please tell me that before I actually weigh in and write something about this. But these are the kinds of things I wanted to share with you today. I want to end by focusing on this last question. You know, how do you think about the cost-benefit calculation of your response strategy? And I'm just going to weigh in on, on three trends that I think would make you think about whether to say something or not. And the first, I think most of you would be familiar with, which is there are changing perceptions among millennials. And this gets back to, if we go back to the framework for a moment, and you look at that framework in the upper right corner, um, excuse me, the upper left corner, high risk situations that your employees think you should be weighing in on, but they're not necessarily aligned to your values, are often among the most dangerous places for you to get involved in. But yet, you have these millennials who are kind of pushing you to do things that maybe you don't want to do. And the pressure can be very high. Employees and customers and values are not necessarily all easily lined up, which is part of the problem. We know that uh, CEO activism is also a key part of this, and many CEOs have decided they want to weigh into this, and that's a good thing. Uh, but again, how connected is it? And the last is this, what's the opportunity cost of not responding? Again, you all as communicators know that if you don't say anything, it's not that you're not saying anything. You're saying something pretty profound when you don't weigh in. So I'll end with these. First, a lot of the studies, and again, I'm trying to give you the most conservative information that we have from research, show that about half of millennials, millennials want their CEOs to speak out. It probably is more than that. I'm giving you what I think is the conservative end of this. They want you to talk all the time about everything. Um, and, you know, the second point on CEO activism, uh, a Harvard Business School Fuqua study that I looked at showed that when individuals are told that Tim Cook says a law is discriminatory, support for that law falls by 10%. And here's another thing that goes along with that. In addition, intent to purchase Apple products goes up. Now, if you know that, you've got to be thinking a lot about what you're willing to weigh in on. And I didn't go through the Apple examples that I use. Some of them make a lot of sense to me. Some of them are completely crazy in terms of you know, what, what is happening when Tim Cook says something. And it's clearly being driven by maybe what he wants to do. But here's my last slide. What is the opportunity cost of not responding? And this is now far enough away, and maybe it's far enough away from you people sitting in the back that you can't even see it, that you don't remember who these people are. Does anyone remember who these CEOs are and what they did not do? Anyone? Pardon me? Uh, Mary Barra, CEO of General Motors. Uh, Toby Cosgrove, CEO of Cleveland Circle, Cleveland uh, Clinic, rather. Um, Jack Welch, Michael Dell. 
Everybody now know? They, yeah, they didn't comment on Charlottesville. They were sitting on the president's advisory panel and said nothing. Uh, that did not come without cost, and I think that's key. Linda. So I'm sure many of you in the room as uh, CCOs often also find yourself in the role of chief integrator. And I think that was what uh, we had a catalyst uh, opportunity and it was for our communication staff to create some integration and alignment across the organization about how to think about these kinds of topics. And it came from the, uh, a request that had come into our general counsel department for the company to sign on to the amicus brief for the Defense of Marriage Act case that was going before the Supreme Court. And legal did a review of whether or not to sign on to that and um, gave a legal opinion back that whether or not, no matter how the Supreme Court ruled, how we were going to treat our um, LGBT employees with their benefits and their opportunities wasn't going to change, so they didn't feel like we had a dog in that hunt. So the answer went back to uh, the requester and said, no, Southwest isn't going to sign on to that. About a week or so later, uh, I, we get a call from a national LGBT uh, publication that said, we want to know why you made the decision not to sign on to the amicus brief. So that came into communications. And we were like, hmm, didn't know we made that decision. So it just became, it became an internal exploration to find out where had that request come in, how had the decision been made? How was it communicated? Uh, the resulting story was, um, I think the headline was the case of the missing signature, um, which uh, then got obviously picked up in our industry news. And so then came a call from the CEO who said, why didn't we sign on to the amicus brief? I was like, good question. So it was just really an opportunity for us to understand that we needed to um, think about things more holistically. We needed to be much more integrated so we did two things. The first one was we formed a social topics committee. Uh, and it brings together 10 people from different functions. So we have investor relations, communications, regulatory compliance, governmental affairs, general counsel, diversity and inclusion. And then we bring in sort of subject matter experts from our, uh, the people department, which is our HR function or marketing or whoever might need to come in. We also signed up to a rapid response. So if we needed to gather quickly uh, to be able to assess an opportunity uh, or an issue, then we've made that commitment. So we've all sort of signed up to say we will mobilize quickly and we'll have a conversation. So we did that for a while. And it was pretty good because at least we were having a more holistic conversation that included a lot of different viewpoints and perspectives. But it still felt like sometimes our ultimate decision was based on the loudest voice in the room. And so, you know, you've got the perhaps conservative voice of general counsel saying, why do we have to say anything about anything? Um, and then the communicators saying, well, here's the risk if we don't say something, so that opportunity cost of do nothing. And from there, 
uh, we, we continued to iterate, and what we actually created was a framework that's actually an interactive document. So much like your traffic light system of red light, yellow light, green light, these turn different shades of red, yellow, and green based on how each member of the social topics committee is asking or answering the questions. So for instance, when we look at business impact, there's five or six questions under that. Um, and depending on how you answer those questions, the, the, the document will begin to shade a different color. We take a look at employee impact and perception. So there's, you know, it, is the drive coming from employees for us to engage on this particular issue? Customer reaction, what will that look like? Uh, public perception, um, the timing, how quick do we have to move? Is there time to think about a, um, we kind of call our engagement plan mild, medium, and caliente. So when we make the decision that we're going to engage, can we start small and build if we have to? Um, taking a look at brand and reputation impact, um, and also who's creating the drive or the pressure or the impetus to get involved in a particular issue could there be an adverse or positive uh, government um, relationship impact there? So anyway, all of those things, our guiding principles are that we want to be uh, is speed, consistency, and adherence to values. And so uh, the purpose of Southwest Airlines is to connect people to what's important in their lives. So we want to make sure that with every decision that we make, that we're at least being consistent with that purpose and what we say are our values, which are living and working the Southwest way. So we want to serve, we want to wow the customer, we want to work safely, we want to find a better way, and we invite our employees to do that with a servant's heart, a fun-loving attitude, and a warrior spirit. So we apply that in everything that we look at. And basically, it took away the uh, problem that we had about the loudest voice in the room, because as everyone was answering these questions from their perspective and their experience, we went with sort of the consensus shading uh, on these issues. And um, we've been able to use this now in, in several instances, um, probably um, most recently the Texas, state of Texas was looking at a uh, bathroom bill similar to what North Carolina was doing. And so we went through this process, the social topics committee re recommended to our CEO that we do engage. Um, and we started with our low engagement and we kind of dialed it up over time to medium. Um, largely at the request of some of the insider politicos that were working in Austin. Um, we've applied that to gun control, immigration, DACA, um, and so it, it has been, again, it's a, it, there's nothing perfect about it, and we still have our uh, fussing and discussing and cussing uh, sessions, but it's at least given us a framework to have the conversation, and I think we feel a lot better, and I know our CEO feels a lot better, that he's getting some sort of collective input from a number of different voices who all have sort of different kinds of skin in the game. You know, is it going to affect our employees? Is it going to affect our stock price? Um, will there be any adverse political uh, blowback, things like that? So um, that's been our, our journey thus far. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode of The New CCO, be sure to check out our latest episodes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think so that we can keep making this podcast more interesting and valuable to you. To find out more about what's happening at PAGE, please visit us at page.org. Special thanks go to The Home Depot and to Rivet Smart Audio for making this season of The New CCO possible. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on The New CCO. Thank you.